Listeners like you support the Historian's Podcast and keep history alive. Please donate to our fund drive by clicking the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We've come to call this kind of podcast a chit-chat. I read from my Focus on History columns in the Daily Gazette and Amsterdam Recorder, and from time to time... Dave Green chimes in. Why don't you chime, Dave? <laughs> so I was going to ask you exactly what a chime sounds like, Bob, but uh, whatever you have in mind, I'm all set. All right. Well, let's start uh, with this particular column that we did in March of 2022. Ukrainians in Amsterdam, New York. The first Ukrainians to migrate to Amsterdam did so about 1903. St. Nicholas Brotherhood formed in 1907 with 26 members from Amsterdam and other communities. Construction of St. Nicholas Ukrainian Catholic Church in Amsterdam began that year on Pulaski Street. The church was dedicated in 1910. It was finished and dedicated. And there were about 70 Ukrainian-American families in Amsterdam before World War I. In 1914, the Sisterhood of the Immaculate Conception of Mary was started. The first president was Anna Quas. And here's a, a, a left turn in the story. I'm just telling you about Amsterdam and when the Ukrainian-Americans came and how many there were, so on and so forth. I have yet to divulge this fact. My uncle by marriage, Peter Segan, was Ukrainian. One of his daughters, Barbara Segan Gould, wrote, quote, He was born in Galicia, a province of Ukraine sandwiched between Poland and Austria-Hungary. In 1898, when he was born, the region was ruled by Austria-Hungary, but I remember him saying that its government regularly switched from Austria-Hungary, to Poland, to Ukraine. Dad proudly called himself Ukrainian and let no one call him anything else. My cousin, Barbara Segan Gould, lives in Connecticut. She has two sisters, uh, Betty Pronk and Margaret Heisert, who live in the Amsterdam area. A brother, John, died years ago. Uh, Barbara Segan Gould wrote, Upon the death of his parents... The farm on which my dad grew up, listen to this, was left to either his oldest brother or the two older brothers, leaving Peter out of the equation altogether. Dad was 18 in 1916, and with a young uncle, who I believe was about 30 years old, they decided to emigrate. They made it to Hamburg, Germany. I presume they walked there, and they stowed away on a passenger ship bound for New York. They were discovered and had to work for their passage. Segan uh, Gould wrote, Upon landing at Ellis Island, Dad and his uncle went through the usual screenings and although without papers, were allowed to remain in the United States. Peter left Ellis Island to work for a coal mining company in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. He developed tuberculosis and was sent uh, to a convalescent home. And the convalescent home is up here 
in the Mohawk Valley. It was called Mount Loretto, was located on Sward Hill Road in the town of Amsterdam, New York. My mother's sister, Jane Cook, was a cook at Mount Loretto, and she and Peter met, and they were married in the 1930s. They moved to a small house, I was going to say nearby Mount Loretto. It was actually a bit of a distance, uh, but their house was on Turuna Road, which is a very unspellable name, Turuna Road. Meanwhile, that, that's what's going on with my relatives in the town of Amsterdam, including my uncle by marriage, who's Ukrainian, Peter. But meanwhile, at St. Nicholas in Amsterdam in the 20s and 30s, the church was prospering, sponsored an orchestra, a dance troupe, a dramatic troupe. Ukrainian immigration to America also increased after World War II. The large number of children that were coming in led, for example, to an Amsterdam parish school for a, for a time. The Ukrainian Catholic Youth League organized after World War II. There were basketball teams for boys and girls and a Ukrainian Boy Scouts troop. The church rectory was built in 1948. When I was young, I was born in 1945, our family lived in a flat in a four-family house on Pulaski Street in Amsterdam near St. Nicholas Church. My sister and I would look out our window when the church had colorful processions, processions on Ukrainian Easter, which is different from the Easter that Roman Catholics uh, observe, whether it's a week different or something like that. But we'd love to watch their processions uh, and uh, walking around the church. A portion of St. Casimir's Lithuanian Cemetery off Widow Susan Road in the town of Amsterdam was purchased in 1955 by St. Nicholas and named St. Nicholas Cemetery. And there's more. A Ukrainian-American Citizens Club built in 1961 on Amsterdam's Teller Street, near where the church was in Amsterdam, held programs for Ukrainians and others. By the early 2000s, though, the club had ceased to function. The number of Ukrainians in Amsterdam started to drop in the 1970s, largely due to general decline of industry in Amsterdam itself. However, Ukraine's independence, which was back in 1991 when the Soviet Union was crumbling, opened the doors for more immigration. But now Russia's invasion of Ukraine has cast a dark cloud over the future of Ukraine itself. Information on Amsterdam's St. Nicholas Ukrainian community was provided by Martha Swiderski. Swiderski's father, Myron Swiderski, is a longtime advocate for the Ukrainian community in Amsterdam. And, and one thought I'd like to leave with you, Dave, is the Easter egg. Have you ever seen a, or had a Ukrainian Easter egg? I, I don't believe I have, but I, I have a good visual of it. Very colorful, correct? Yeah. That, one of the Suderskis had presented uh, me with a, a colored egg. You don't usually, well, maybe you eat the 
what was in the egg, but that you keep the shell intact and you just sort of have the egg there to look at. Uh, the other thought I have in reference to your story, Bob, is uh, going back to your reference of how when he was a youngster and the farm was changing hands and the fact that the gover- there was a different government every every other week, maybe we should give that a try. Well, we may, yeah. whether we want to or not. Today in the United States, we're going to use Canadian rules or Mexican rules. I have no <laughs> idea. Now, what's next, Bob? Well, our next one is one of our World War II stories. And was headlined, Triumph After Three Years as a Japanese Prisoner of War. It was a Focus on History column uh, from February of 2022. Michael Swan's mother told him, don't ever talk to your father about the war. Many years later, after their father had passed, Michael and his brothers learned some of the reasons. Michael's father was... Alton Swan, S-W-A-N-N, Alton Swan. He was born in Schenectady in 1916, son of Aura and Helen Swan. At eight years old, he moved to Gloversville with his mother and four siblings after Aura Swan died. Alton was on the debate team, edited the school newspaper, and excelled in track at Gloversville High. After high school, he graduated from Gloversville Business School and was hired as an accountant at Schenectady General Electric. He was drafted by the U.S. Army in May of 1941. He was assigned to Clark Air Base in the Philippines with an engineer battalion, the 803rd. Within hours of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, a Japanese bombing attack on December 8th, resulted in destruction of Clark Field. Swan was reassigned to the battle for Bataan, which the Americans ultimately lost to the Japanese. He fought at Aglaloma, where his 803rd Battalion was decimated. Swan was put on board a transport ship, which took survivors to the American island fortress of Corregidor, still an American ship, Swan told his eldest son his superiors were impressed he was able to maintain his composure when Japanese planes strafed their ship. Corregidor, the island fortress, held on until May 1942 when they surrendered to the Japanese. Taken prisoner, Swan survived a death march on Bataan where hundreds were killed or died while marching to internment camps. He was held at Camp 10C in the Philippines until September 1944, when transported to Japan aboard a hell ship, the Noto Maru. Hundreds of prisoners were put into these ships, forced to stand upright in the hold in tropical heat. U.S. submarines mistakenly sank many such overcrowded shops, or ships, I should say. You know, after all, they're Japanese ships, and the submarines were trying to find Japanese ships to sink. They didn't realize that these ships carried primarily American prisoners. In Japan, a swan was imprisoned at a POW camp, used as slave labor, shoveling manganese ore into furnaces. Tooth decay, gum disease developed, 
Other prisoners developed malaria and other diseases. Treatment by prison guards was brutal. Liberated in September 1945, after the Japanese surrender, Swan was put aboard a hospital ship where he rode his fiancée, a woman named Glendine Brooks in Gloversville, asking if she was still waiting for him. She said she was. He spent time in Manila before returning to San Francisco aboard a transport. All his teeth were pulled. He was fitted with dentures. For his part in the Philippines campaign, Sergeant Swan received the Purple Heart Good Conduct Medal and various campaign ribbons. In his first letter home, he said memories of loved ones brought him through experiences left better left undescribed. Alton's mother received a telegram saying her son was on his way home. He arrived in November. Alton married Glendine at the parsonage of the Methodist Church in Gloversville on Thanksgiving afternoon, 1945. Their son Michael, who told me most of the story, was born nine months later. As a child, he never was really aware of it, uh, what his father had endured, but his mother told him his father suffered probably from what we would call PTSD. He had a lifelong issue with sleeplessness and nightmares of the war. But ultimately, Alton went back to work at GE in Schenectady. They had two more sons, he and Glendine, and he was transferred to uh, Connecticut with GE. Uh, and that's where he was uh, living uh, when, he, when he passed away in 2002, age 86. Uh, burial was with full military honors at a cemetery in Southbury, Connecticut. Alton's son, Michael, made frequent business trips to Japan, which he said was just a strange experience given what had happened to his father. He was humbled by a visit to the site of the Nomachi POW camp near Toyama. That's the factory where his father slaved and at the time was still still standing. So Dave, I guess the message from this piece is don't talk with Dad about the war. I get it. There are certain soldiers in the service, Bob, who drew the short straw. He was one of them. I'm glad he made it back. Her name was Glendine, you said? Yeah, Glendine. Uh, and and I'm, I'm listening to you as you describe that. Are you are you still there waiting for me? I'm holding my breath. Right. Isn't that something? Yeah, she said. That's great. Like somebody did a book about uh, the Dear John letters that so many soldiers received during the war because many of their sweethearts were not waiting anymore. And I'm also thinking the time he was, in the years he was working for General Electric, what his thoughts must have been for all of those years. I'm here at GE, but my mind is back there. Let me uh, go to a different area. This is about music. Amsterdam's Hallelujah Connection. Uh, this was a focus on history column in the Daily Gazette and Amsterdam Recorder, which appeared in late January 2022. There is a connection between Amsterdam and singer Jeff Buckley, who recorded the most popular version of Canadian songwriter Leonard Cohen's anthem, 
Hallelujah. Have you ever heard Hallelujah, Dave? That, that version of it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think maybe I did. After you had described this a bit a couple of weeks ago, I did. I think I, fi- I found it on YouTube. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, you find it. Uh, Leonard Cohen does a version of it. Jeff Buckley, we'll find out, the, who has links to Amsterdam, uh, did the most popular version of Hallelujah. It was also done by Katie Lang, uh, the Canadian singer, and she does it as a real powerful, powerful piece. Other uh, hallelujahs are a little more subdued. Leonard Cohen died in 2016. He himself recorded Hallelujah in 1984, and the song took a real long time to gain popularity. After hearing a cover version by John Cale, Jeff Buckley recorded his own Hallelujah cover, and he did so at a recording studio not not too far from here, at Bearsville Recording Studio in Ulster County, New York. He released the song in an album in 1994. Jeff Buckley's father, and this is where we get into what Dave sometimes calls the bouncing ball of these columns. It gets a little complex. Jeff Buckley is the singer of Hallelujah. He recorded this song and put it out in 1994. His father was a musician named Tim Buckley III, and his father spent his early years in Amsterdam and Fort Johnson. Tim Buckley III died in 1975 of a heroin and morphine overdose at age 28 in Santa Monica, California. His ashes were scattered in the Pacific Ocean. Music critic David Brown, I read an article that David Brown wrote for some magazine, and he's done a lot of research or done research on the Buckley family. He says, quote, Jeff Buckley, who grew up barely knowing his father and being resentful of it, himself died in 1997 from drowning in Memphis in the Mississippi River. A sad story, almost a Greek tragedy, said Mr. Brown. Jeff Buckley's death was ruled accidental. This music critic, David Brown, is author of a book called Dream Brother, The Lives and Music of Jeff and Tim Buckley. Uh, Jeff Buckley's recording of Hallelujah didn't become popular until after his death. Buckley's version has been featured in film and television dramas. They use it to sort of set a certain tone or something like that. His, His Hallelujah was inducted into the Library of Congress. And the Amsterdam Buckleys is where we're going now, more bouncing ball. The first member of the Buckley family to settle in Amsterdam was named Tim Buckley. Tim the Third's grandfather and Jeff's great-grandfather. Tim Buckley had come from Ireland in the early 1900s. He operated an auto repair shop with another guy. Uh, Buckley and his wife Charlotte lived on Mechanic Street, and he was house steward at an American Legion post, having served in World War I. The son of this Tim Buckley was Tim Buckley II, whose nickname was Buck. Born in 1916, Buck worked at the Strand Movie Theater, later at Bigelow Sanford Carpet. 
Brown, the music critic, wrote, In 1942, Tim was drafted and served in the Screaming Eagles, a paratroopers division in Europe, receiving a Purple Heart, but also a heart injury that resulted in a head plate and many psychological problems, like thinking he was still in the war decades later. So that was Tim Buckley II. Tim Buckley III, the father of Jeff Buckley, I know this gets very complex. Uh, Tim Buckley III was born in 1947, oddly in the District of Columbia, the Washington, D.C. area, where his father uh, was posted at the end of World War II and who stayed there for a while, but ultimately uh, his father, who was Tim II, uh, moved back to Amsterdam with his wife Elaine and their son, of course. They lived on Garden Street. Uh, Tim II worked for GE, General Electric. Uh, Tim III's mother was a jazz fan, Miles Davis, Billie Holiday, Frank Sinatra, and introduced her son to jazz recordings. Tim Buckley moved with his family uh, to the village of Fort Johnson uh, when Tim was in the second grade. And ultimately, they moved to California, uh, where Tim Buckley's music career took root, resulting in a string of albums and tours between 1966 and his death in 1975. Buckley did not find commercial success, but is admired for musical innovation and vocal ability. Jeff Buckley's relationship with his father figures in a movie called Greetings from Tim Buckley, produced in 2012. Penn Badgley, an actor, played Jeff Buckley. Ben Rosenfeld portrayed his father, Tim. Variety reported the film included a train trip to Amsterdam, where Jeff's father once lived. So that's the uh, Buckley bouncing ball story. Dave, I imagine you're thoroughly confused. Uh, I would suggest, folks, that you may want to listen to the podcast twice, and you'll, you'll pick up on it. And when you finally gave us the name, was it Badgley, Bob? Yes, Penn I, I thought, oh, we're out of the woods. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Had you ever heard of Mr. Badgley? I can't say no. No, I have not. Because I guess he was an actor, but maybe not in great movies. But but, but I w- but I would assume that like the Buckleys, the Badgleys had a lot of yeah. brothers and sisters. No, they probably did. Yeah, they probably did. Okay, we move on. Okay, well, we, time for uh, just one more story. Probably have to cut this one down, which I don't think anybody's going to cry about. Uh, and it also has to do with entertainment. It's not uh, like the, the song Hallelujah. It's about country western entertainers Jack Patton and Dusty Miller. Uh, this appeared January 22nd in Focus on History in the Daily Gazette and the Amsterdam Recorder. A reader asked if I knew anything about Jack Patton, the Polish cowboy. I had interviewed Patton once or twice on my WGY radio show in the 1980s. Patton was a musician songwriter, health food advocate, actor, and Amsterdam native. The website hillbillymusic.com. I think it's wonderful to think, Dave, that there is actually a website called 
hillbillymusic.com. I looked it up the first time I heard you speak of this, Bob, and it's a great website. It helps a lot. Yeah, it has a lot of information about hillbilly music. Yeah, all those and, people you sort of heard off in the distance when you were a kid. Yeah, maybe like Jack Patton. Um, and hillbilly music reported that Patton's given name was Frank Aloysius Pichuk. Uh, they were of Polish heritage. His father worked at Mohawk Carpet Mills, and supposedly the father changed the family name to Patton because, and this is what he told the magazine or something, there were too many other factory employees named Pichuk, so he wanted to distinguish themselves. So he became Jack Patton, and Jack Patton played traditional Polish music at local weddings and dance halls on violin and accordion. Hillbilly Music stated that Patton was a childhood friend of actor and producer Kirk Douglas, who grew up in Amsterdam. He did move to Hollywood in 1939. Columbia Pictures apparently was going to use one of his songs or told them that they would. Uh, Patton was drafted, uh, went into World War II. He had impaired vision, and he saw limited duty repairing damaged planes in Biloxi, Mississippi. Columbia Pictures apparently used Cowboy Polka, one of the Jack Patton's songs in the movie Swing in the Saddle, which featured music by Nat King Cole's trio. Patton met a songwriter named Eden Abez, A-H-B-E-Z, Eden Abez, and helped convince Nat King Cole to record Abez's song, Nature Boy, which became a hit for Nat King Cole. I vaguely remember it, Nature Boy, but supposedly that Jack Patton did that, got Nat King Cole to uh, use that song. Patton also may have helped songwriter Stan Jones present Jones's song, Ghost Riders in the Sky, to Vaughn Monroe, who had a hit with the tune in 1949. However, uh, Jones's uh, biography failed to mention Jack Patton. Patton returned to the Capital District. He opened a health food store, did radio shows, and performed with his band. At one point, hillbillymusic.com reported Patton had six health food stores. From 1949 to 1965, he operated a dude ranch called Sunset Ranch in Broad Alban. A 1952 recorder ad reported Patton was doing a show from Lansing Beach Ranch in Broad Alban over Albany radio station WROW. A 1955 ad from the Schenectady Gazette stated Patton then operated Lansing Beach Ranch, renamed Sunset Ranch, which was having a giant horse pull and a broadcast by Gloversville Station, WENT. And roaming around, a 1976 column in the Leader Herald newspaper reported Patton was appearing in a movie filmed mainly in Brazil called Inspiration, The Polish Cowboy Rides Again. The column expressed the hope the movie would be popular in Brazil, the United States, and Europe, especially Poland. Don't know what happened there. 
Patton was living in Nashville when he died in the 1990s or later. He had purchased a recording studio there. So that's Jack Patton, the Polish cowboy. And we, we don't have uh, time for uh, another uh, another episode of uh, Focus on History. You can find Focus on History uh, on the uh, local section or in the local section of the Daily Gazette newspaper out of Schenectady uh, most weekends, usually runs on Saturday, and it's also usually Saturday it runs in the Amsterdam Recorder, and we also put uh, versions of Focus on History into these uh, uh, into the online version of uh, what we do, which is uh, located at bobcudmore.com. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.